If you're addicted to love, get ready to binge your heart out. Stream exclusive originals plus the entire 90-day universe for just $4.99. Discovery Plus is the streaming home of relationships, plus so much more. Start your free trial. Welcome back to How We Win. (laughs) All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. The best antidote to anxiety is action. There are 34 days left until the most important election of our lives, just over a month. With your help, we can win all the houses. That's right. Today, we are talking about talking on the phone with voters (laughs) in our key states. Phone banking is now the only safe way we have to connect one-on-one with voters. We're going to give you the tips and tricks to have effective, meaningful conversations. We also hear from diversity, inclusion, and equity expert, Jordine Blaze. She talks about how to have culturally competent conversations with voters and communities outside our own and how to go deeper with our conversations around race and equity. This is going to come in handy with that phone banking. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven, and this This is How We Win. win. Yeah, Mariah is back. back. That's my Mariah song. (laughs) I'm back. I'm sleep deprived, but I have an awesome little baby. So, how is baby Jackson doing? Baby Jackson is great. He started smiling this week. So that's pretty amazing. I'm so happy for you guys and uh, really, really happy that you're back. I'm sure all of our listeners are so tired of my voice on this thing and glad to have you back here. doubt it. (laughs) That can't be true. Uh, The nice thing about him also is that he doesn't talk about Donald Trump. So Not yet. He's the only one. <laughs> Literally the only one. <laughs> may he never even like may it just be something he reads about in the history books, something which Isn't that wild? Like he's gonna read he's gonna read about this moment in fifth grade history and be like, This sounds weird. What were you guys thinking? <laughs> It's like, like, is is this what you were prattling on about on your (laughs) podcast, Mom? It'll be called something different by then. It'll be like a... The hologram cast. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, we want to leave this moment behind, but we want to do it right. We want to make a difference, and we want to move on. Yeah, yeah. And and we are getting close. Um, This is the moment we've been waiting for. And, uh, of course, last night... We had a debate, and we don't need to talk about that. What we really want to do, it's going to be a little bit of a departure from our normal podcast format because we really want to get you into action. So as we said, today is going to be all about phone banking, and we're going to go through tips and tricks and um, everything that you need to know to be an effective phone banker. Yet never forget that no matter how many debates you watch, no matter how many polls you read and dive into, no matter how many trending topics you see out there, uh, elections come down to people talking to people Mm. uh, and doing it strategically. 
strategically. That's that's really important. So we're we're going to get into how to do that today. And um, right now, phone banking is the most effective thing that we as individuals can do to turn out voters. That's right. It's the only safe way we have to have those actual one-on-one conversations. There's, it's so important. And the campaigns really need phone bankers because mm-hmm. the more people we have doing this work, the more they, uh, the more passes they can make on their universe, which means the people that they're reaching out to. And what my hope is, Mariah, is there's a, a traditional universe that campaigns reach out to, a tr- traditional group of people in GOTV time, which means get out the vote. Um, in this case, it's the three. It's it's now, you know, because ballots are already dropping. But those are people who the campaign has identified as supporters of their campaigns and have like a medium propensity to vote. Right. Mm-hmm. And they need some extra uh, conversations, some extra uh, contact to make sure that they get to the polls. My hope and what I, I can see making a reality is if we get enough people having these conversations and phone banking that we can go through that universe, go multiple passes through those people, that we can expand and start reaching out to more of the what they would call lower propensity voters, people who don't get contacted all the time on campaigns. And these we've talked about it on our show many, many times. I am firmly in the camp that we need to reach out to everybody, especially the people that are traditionally disenfranchised. They are not low propensity voters because of any fault of their own. They're low propensity voters because they don't feel like they're a stakeholder, because they don't get talked to and they don't um, and they don't uh, have people reach out to them. So if we get enough people doing that work, we can really expand this universe and and make this the tsunami. I mean, it has to be a massive landslide. We all know right. why and how important that is. Right. I feel like I'm uh, uniquely qualified to help people with their phone banking. Because way back in like the summer of 2000, I was saving up for a trip to Mexico, which was amazing, by the way. And Blockbuster Video cut my hours. So I needed a second job. So I I got a job as a telemarketer. Wow. (laughs) I've talked to so many people on the phone. I've been hung up on so many times. And you know what? I survived. (laughs) And I've done plenty of phone banking since then. So. I've learned, got, every time we talk, I've, I've learned. First of all, Blockbuster, what a sweet gig. You, know, you get to watch <laughs> the movies all day. That's awesome. That was a great job. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so that's good. So you, you can share the, <laughs> um, the good, the bad, and the ugly about phone banking. But um, it's what we need to do. And like, people are scared to phone bank. I get that. I get scared the first time I pick up the phone, those first couple of calls, I get that pit in my stomach. But once you start doing it, the the conversations you have are really rewarding. And mm-hmm. um, and it's what the campaigns need, right? They do need people on the phone. So it, it's time to dip your toe in those phone banking waters and uh, and be bold and uh, and do it. And do you want to talk about what people uh, can expect from from phone banking? Sure, sure. So um, some things to keep in mind, because, you know, managing your own expectations is really important and keeping your morale up. 
uh, believe it or not, you're not going to talk to a ton of people. Like you're going to dial number after number after number, but you're going to have 10 to 20% of people pick up. So don't get discouraged if you have six, seven uh, dials in a row where no one picks up. That's totally normal. Right. Um, also, we're not wasting time talking to people who we know are Trump supporters at this point. We don't have time to do that. So your campaign that you're supporting is going to be giving you the number, the phone numbers of people who are likely to support uh, Democratic candidates. You don't That's have to worry about that. Yeah, that's a really important point because a lot of people are like, I don't want to get in arguments with you right. know Trump, and and that's not who we're calling. Like I said, we're calling likely supporters. If you do end up talking to somebody that is a Republican or a Trumper, then you just say, "Thank you very much. Have a great day," and move on to the next call. Yeah, yeah, and then you're also going to have real conversations. You are going to have an opportunity to share why you're doing this volunteer work. People are going to share why they're either excited about the election or hesitating to vote. Um, and, and this year, out of all the years, it's so important to have these conversations because there's so much um, misinformation flying around out there. Um, and there's so many changes that are coming to keep voters safe during the pandemic. So voting right. may look a little bit different depending on the community. So it's really important for you to have these conversations with folks. And then the last thing is you don't have to know everything. I think that sometimes people don't pick up the phone when they're volunteering because they, they say, oh, what if I get a question that I can't answer? That rarely happens. And if you do, you just tap dance your way to Google and uh, or direct the, the person on the other end to the candidate's website or to right. swing left. You'll get all of that information when you get trained for the phone bank. Yeah, exactly. Most of the phone banks, uh, you know, we work with a lot of phone banks. So I, I will always say most or usually, <laughs> I'll never make ultimatums on this, but most of the phone banks will give you cheat sheets and talking points mm -hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, you can do some research on your own to prepare if you want, but it's totally fine to say, I don't know, and check out the website. You don't want to give the caller bad information, certainly. You don't want to give them the wrong right. information. So. And it's enough just to be a volunteer uh, calling, taking your time and connecting with people. You know, that really makes a difference. Always start with that. I'm a volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> people are a lot more uh, accepting of volunteers than people who they think are calling to ask them for money or something. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll say phone banking in the past uh, has been kind of a lower contact sport. Right. Um, as you mentioned, you, you don't always talk to a lot of people, but I will say anecdotally, people have been making more contacts with these phone banks. They've actually been reaching more people and having you know better quality conversations than I've uh, traditionally heard about on campaigns. Because one, people are home, mm -hmm. and uh, and two, people are actually more apt to talk, and they they really appreciate being reached out to. Most of the campaigns, again, that word most, but just about all of them, start the script with some kind of wellness check for people, you know, to check in with them about how they're doing during uh, mm -hmm. the pandemic because we're all uh, affected by this. And it's also like a really great way to start that conversation too. So, oh, and, and one other thing that uh, Mariah mentioned about um, when you're making phone calls, you might make a few calls that um, don't go through. Um, there's actually, you know, we do, again, we work with a lot of campaigns. There's 
two different kinds of dialers or you know phone banking software that we use. There's what we call a predictive dialer and manual phone banking. So the predictive dialer is where, um, and it really works great when there's a lot of people making phone calls. It helps when there's more people on there. It goes through the phone numbers for you and finds someone that says hello and answers. So it screens out disconnected numbers, answering machines usually, and stuff like that. So you hear a little beep, and then someone's already said hello, and you start right in with the script. With the manual phone banking, you're making those calls yourself, either on your own phone or through the computer, um, through that interface. So that's where you have more wrong numbers or um, answering machines and stuff like that. They're, they both have their their pluses and minuses. They're, they're both great ways to reach voters. But just so you have an idea that you'll be – there's some tech involved and, and you'll be experiencing kind of different different versions of that. Yeah, that's why the training is always so important. And a question that I have gotten a lot is, especially when people are doing manual phone banking and they're, um, you know, tapping numbers into their personal phones, is, oh, should I be blocking my my phone number? Mm-hmm. Um, and believe it or not, I usually tell people if you're comfortable with not blocking it, don't block it, because. People, I think, are more likely to pick up when they can see the number. Yeah, um, and and they're likely to pick up when they don't know who who's calling them. They don't know that they want to avoid you, and they're like, <laughs> "Who who is this? Let me let me answer." And a, a very rarely you'll get somebody who calls you back and say, "Oh, I missed a call from this number," and you can you know give them give them the spiel. But yeah, I don't be afraid to dial without masking your number. Yeah. I, I've had people call me back once or twice, not really that often. I've enjoyed it actually when they did because <laughs> mm-hmm. I got to have a conversation with them. But the other thing that you can do is um, you could set up a Google Voice. You get a Google Voice. It's an app that you can download from the App Store and um, and set up a number that way. So if you don't want to share your personal number, then you can do it like that. Some more tech to um, enjoy, um, but that's some people like doing that. Good advice. So once you sign up, here's what you're going to need. And you'll get details about this when you sign up for a phone bank. But you typically need a laptop or tablet, um, a phone if there's a manual, if there's the manual dialer like we were talking about. And then you want to know who you're calling for. So I usually just go to the candidate's website, take a quick peruse around look at their Twitter and I've got an, I've got a great idea. Of, and then I also, of course, like I'm supporting them. So I know why. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, everything else will be provided for you. Script, FAQs, details about the area, phone numbers. So it's really easy to get prepped for one of these phone banks. Yeah, that's right. You don't have to stress about it. And, and if you do run into any any problems, any questions about the tech and stuff like that, we have great resources on our phone bank page. Swingleft.org slash phone bank has all kinds of docs and uh, and helpful stuff there too. So, And we are here for you. I'm here and for And people you. can also sign up for a training with you, right? They can, yeah. We're doing phone banking training and GOTV trainings uh, four times a week now. It's fun. But let's... Um, Let's talk about some best practices now, shall we? When you're actually making those calls, I mean, 
you were junior sales associate of the year at that new job you took in, in uh, the year 2000, right? At the telemarketing firm. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 listen, I wasn't invited back the next summer. Let's just, <laughs> no. But I did. But I am good at, I, you know what? I am good at talking on the phone. So. Well, let's talk some best practices when you're making the calls. The first one is to keep the moment in mind when you're calling people, mm. you know, right? Because we're calling people during a global pandemic. It's like we mentioned before, it's affected all of us in different ways. And the campaigns, like I said, do have a wellness check at the beginning. So that's a really lovely way to check in with people and make sure they're okay. But we do want to approach these calls with empathy and understanding that we're in a tough moment for a lot of, a lot of people. That's so important for both the volunteers and, and the voters. The next thing is is don't make assumptions. So mm -hmm. a lot of us are calling into communities that are different than our own. So it's really important that we don't make assumptions about who we're calling. Mostly it's just important to listen and um, understand that when we're calling from what we've talked about before is our big blue double bubbles, um, that community may be a little bit more conservative than we are, but we share the same uh, same principles, same overlying values, and we're all doing the same work to, to uh, elect Democrats. Great advice, even if you're not phone banking. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Um, every phone bank, you're going to get a script. The script is super important because it's uh, typically written by professionals who have seen polls that you may not have access to. Mm -hmm. um, and they're also trying to elicit very specific information. So you want to make sure that you're asking all of the questions that are part of the script and sticking with it, but you should also make it your own. It's always obvious when somebody on the other end is you know, reading a script verbatim and hasn't read it before. Um, so you want to practice it um, before you make your first first call, but then also put it in your own words while, you know, sticking to the, to the bare bones of it. So mm -hmm. instead of saying, hello, this is insert name, <laughs> I'm, you know, you want to say hi and use the other person's name because you're going to have access to that. Right. Hi, Steve. It's Mariah, a volunteer with the such and such campaign. It's a great tip. And sticking to the script really is important. It also goes back to my don't make assumptions. Um, because a lot of times, especially if you've been phone banking for a while and you've seen a lot of scripts, you may not like the script. You might think mm. this doesn't make sense to me. I think I know how to talk to these voters better. Yes, but we want to defer to the locals, that. right? These are these are the people who are in the community and know their community, and and we really need to defer to them and be supportive of the work that they're doing. So yeah, stick to the script. And you mentioned introducing yourself. Also, don't ask for permission. This is one mm. of my favorite tips, right? Because we're friendly people and, you know, we don't like getting phone calls sometimes, probably ourselves. So the tendency um, would be to call somebody and say, hey, do you have a minute to talk to me? Or uh, would you be willing to answer a couple of questions? Um, no. <laughs> exactly. That's always the answer. The answer is always no. So don't ask for permission. Jump right in with the script, with the first question on the script. Right. And then this is, uh, this is one of my old telemarketing techniques <laughs> is <laughs> you want to smile. 
even though they can't see you, they can they can hear your smile. Smile, sit up straight and tall if you can, um, and be conversational. You're here to have a, a conversation with somebody who, who is probably very similar to you out there or similar to a friend that you have, and you want to approach them with that in mind. I'm smiling right now while I'm talking. Can you tell? I can hear it. Right? Good, good job, Steve. Yeah. It put me in a better mood. It's gone. It's gone. The smile is gone. I looked at Twitter and it ruined everything. So that's my next tip is don't look at Twitter while you're phone banking. <laughs> no, stay, fo stay focused. Be present. Yeah. We're at home making these calls and it's hard to stay focused. So set a goal for yourself. I like to make it a time goal, not a number of phone calls goal because you don't know exactly how many calls you'll make. But you know, you can say, I'm going to call for half an hour, take a break, call for another half an hour, take a break, you know, set those goals and hit them and, and try to stay focused. Mm -hmm. I like to offer myself treats. If I get through 25 treats. phone calls, I can have some gummy bears. Mm, it's a good treat. Yeah. The last thing I want to say, though, is because this comes up a lot, is mm -hmm. um, too much contact is not a thing, right? It's really not a thing. We talked uh, at the beginning of this about how we have to do multiple passes for these campaigns. Um, we know that it takes sometimes five to seven conversations with voters to make sure that they get to the polls and they actually vote. You are not going to talk someone out of voting. Mm -mm. As we're making these calls to perennial presidential swing states, they get so many calls and you're going to call into Florida or, or North Carolina or Pennsylvania, wherever we're calling, and people get worried that they're going to annoy someone. Too much contact is not a thing. When I hear people saying they're getting a lot of phone calls, it makes my organizer heart swell five times its regular size because that's what we need to do to win. That's true. The other thing is if people vote early, they'll get pulled off the lists for phone banking. So that's always a good thing to share with them. If you're tired of phone calls... <laughs> Go ahead and vote. And once your vote is registered with your county, uh, you'll get removed from the from the rolls. It's we so, don't because we don't have time. We don't have time to phone bing people who've already voted. That's right. It's so and it's so essential. That's why this work is so important right now because there's so many options for people that they didn't have before. Maybe their polling places have changed because of the coronavirus. They had to find safe locations for them to be able to socially distance. There's early voting in states that didn't have it before, vote by mail options, drop boxes, all the stuff that we talk about. So this contact is crucial to let people know what's available and help them work through their plan for exactly how they're going to do that, when and where they're going to do it. That's what it's all about. These turnout conversations are all about helping people vote. And I, I can't think of more important work to do right now than to help mm -hmm. people vote. Absolutely. I would love to hear other people's tips and tricks. They should yeah. email them to us or post them on Twitter with the hashtag how we win 2020. That's a great idea. Please share your, your experiences phone banking too. I, um, someone just shared with me that the calls they've been making, mostly people are thanking them for making these calls, which is really nice. Like we are at this time in history 
where we know that Trump and the GOP is going to do everything, everything in their power to stay in power. We need to be doing everything in our power to make mm-hmm. sure that this is a blowout election and they don't have a leg to stand on. So jump in, do it. The conversations are great. Share the conversations with us. One last thing I want to say, we've been speaking in general terms about virtual phone banks. Like I said, most of them have a leader in a training at the beginning of the phone bank that will give you the information that you need. There's a lot of campaigns. People are dealing with, thankfully, thank goodness, a ton of volunteers. So be patient with the trainers. Be patient with the people who are running it. Um, some do a better job than others, frankly. you know. So ask for help. Defer to the locals. Defer to the campaigns. They know what's going on on the ground there. And, mm-hmm. um, and try to be flexible. Great advice. I can't wait to start making some phone calls again. Well, you know where you can do it, Mariah. Where can I do it? You can go right now to our phone banking hub at swingleft.org slash phone bank. And guess what, everybody? That is your call to action. That's what everyone needs to be doing right now. So swingleft.org slash phone bank. That's where we have our priority campaigns, the campaigns that need us the most, that have asked for phone bankers, the close races where every contact is going to make a big, big difference. I'm going to swingleft.org slash phone bank right now. See you later. Hey, wait, don't go yet. <laughs> oh, wait, what? We're not done? Not quite. You know, um, first of all, I'm so glad you're back, Mariah. I'm just going to say it again. I'm really, I really missed you. I'm so glad Aww. you're back. The show isn't the same without you. Uh, sadly, I did not have you with me to talk to Jordine, but I had a great conversation uh, about how to be culturally competent making these phone calls. We talked about not making assumptions about people and, mm-hmm. and looking at yourself instead of looking at them. Uh, she articulates it so well. I'm really excited for people to hear this conversation. It's part of your phone bank training, so don't miss it. And she also gives some great tools for calling out racism, for calling out bad behavior in constructive ways. And, um, and it's just a really valuable conversation. So I'm excited for everyone to hear it. I can't wait to listen. Jordine Blaze is a renowned diversity, inclusion, and equity consultant and strategist. Her expertise in civil rights enforcement and diversity change management comes from her work with various companies and organizations, including Harvard Law School, North Carolina State University, and the District of Columbia government. She also consulted for Swing Left recently and presented fantastic seminars for our volunteer leaders and staff. And so I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you right now. Thank you for joining us, Jordine. Thank you for having me, Steve. I'm super excited. Yay. Before we get into it, I want to hear a little bit more about you. How did you get started in this work and what led you to what you're doing now? Yeah, that's a great question. I like to believe that the work got started in me. I sort of have been doing this since I was born, practically. I was leading uh, protests in elementary school around fair (laughs) and equitable treatment. So if anyone remembers my uh, gifted program protest, uh, they probably know and were there to witness kind of the burgeoning (laughs) activism within me. And from that work, I think with good study and life experience, I sort of started to question things around me, my neighborhood, my access to education, uh, my opportunities. And a lot of them were wonderful, but a lot of them came with 
quite a bit of hard work. And as I started to explore and question more, I found answers in books, in studying African-American studies and a number of other really wonderful opportunities. And from that, I found myself very interested in civil rights. I always said that I would argue a school desegregation case before the Supreme Court. That led me to law school and I changed gears, but here I am finding myself uh, doing something not too far from that. And you are a lawyer as well, right? Yes, I am. I am. Do you practice at all? I was going to say, I always say a lawyer by trade. Uh, I practice really early on in my career, but don't practice in the traditional sense now. Right. So I want to get to, we we were talking before this interview about phone banking and how important it is to have these one-on-one conversations. And phone banking is the only way that we have to have these real conversations with voters right now that's safe for people Mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of a global pandemic. So we've got a lot of volunteers who are jumping in to have these crucial conversations. And we have a lot of amazing leaders who are also hosting phone banks and training volunteers to have effective conversations. So many of our volunteers are calling into communities that are different than their own. What are the most important practices that volunteers and leaders should employ to have culturally competent conversations with voters? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it starts with understanding contextually that all people are people at their core. And similarly, I think we found a shared humanity in sort of post-COVID navigating life, Mm -hmm. realizing how difficult this time has been for all of us collectively. And I think in approaching phone banking from a culturally competent landscape, it's sort of understanding uh, a tale of two cities, if I may, right? One where these folks are human beings just like you, right? They are, they've spent a a day on Zoom calls or a day at work (laughs) um, and they're kind of wiped by the end of the day. They might be emotionally exhausted from dealing with loss related to COVID or Mm. loss of freedom and flexibility and time. And we're all sort of trying to navigate and adjust to this new world we found ourselves in. Uh, on the other end of that, right, they they also are different, meaning that we, you know, I, I say that with a caveat, right, where everyone's the same, but we're all different right. in these ways. <laughs> um, and I think a culturally competent lens recognizes less about the other person and more about yourself. And so I'm always conscious and co- uh, cognizant to tell people, you know, check yourself. What are you feeling? What's your tone sound like? What's your level of anxiety or nervousness? Chances are they can sense that and they can feel that on the other end. What presumptions have you walked into the conversation with, either Mm. about that person, about that community, about that person's decision-making or lived experiences? I always say that it starts with self and doing some self-check around the tangible, right? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? Did I eat? (laughs) Have I had a snack? Right. Um, And also to the philosophical, right? What do I believe to be the truth about this person? And how do you pause that, pause those assumptions so that you can enter the conversation. And in some ways, this is a sort of micro relationship, right? It's it's short-lived, but very much a relationship between two people. Right. And so how do you enter that from a space of listening, from a space of wanting to understand, from a space of not entering the conversation, knowing everything, but trying to sort of embark on discovery in that lens? You have some, uh, in your presentation, you talk about four things that you need to let go of that were really powerful um, when you're having conversations with communities that are different than your own. 
Do you want to talk about those? I could list them for you, but you, you would do a better <laughs> job. They're yours. <laughs> yeah, I have um, four things that I always tell people to leave at the door, essentially, when they are entering communities that are different than theirs. Um, and one of them is really this concept that you are only an individual. And I always ground a lot of my education and training around that concept, primarily because we sort of socialize to see ourselves as individuals oftentimes, right? We're funny people, good friends, we love tacos, all these really cool things about ourselves. I'm all, I'm all three of those things, by the way. Coincidentally, so am I. I'm funny, I I love friends, and I love tacos. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a part of all of us, right, that we have to love tacos intrinsically. That's always my go-to because I'm like, if you don't, I have to look at you strangely. Seriously, yeah, exactly. I mean, we're not going to be judgmental, but tacos should be universal. I feel like that's kind of key, right? And so when I think about this concept of understanding yourself, right, in the context of being an individual, it's sort of easy to see ourselves that way, right? I'm a kind person. I'm a giving person. But under, understanding yourself as a member of a community is sort of a hearkening back to that self-awareness that I talked about earlier, right? Who am I when it comes to my race or my gender or my socioeconomic status? Uh, am I in English as a second language learner? Am I working class? Am I highly literate and credentialed? How do I sit in spaces of privilege, but also sit in spaces of oppression and resistance? And understanding your role as both an individual and as a member of a socially constructed group, right, sort of helps you navigate both the ways that you perceive the world. So what does, how does that inform your worldview, but also how the world sees you? And as you enter those conversations and those households, it helps you contextualize maybe how you might be responded to, uh, perhaps how you respond to a person that you've contacted in ways that are different based on that socialized experience, right? And so I think it's a huge part of that. I just love that. I love putting the lens on yourself because I think so often we are looking outward, especially when we're reaching out to other communities, making assumptions and judgments on those and and putting the lens, okay, what, you know, what kind of person am I going to talk to? What should I be saying to them that's going to resonate with them? Because I have an idea about that. So I I really love putting the lens on yourself and, and looking at what you're bringing to it. Absolutely. And and it sort of strips away those assumptions, right? Because that's when you enter the conversation and you're like, wow, this did not go how I thought it would go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you sort of like are making divots and turns along the way. And I think that goes nicely with the second point that I made, right? Which is you're not there to save anyone. You're, you're there to serve a community, not to save. And I think that we sometimes have this uh, hero, you know, heroic kind of viewpoint of ourselves where mm-hmm. we see ourselves as kind of swooping in with a cape and saving the day <laughs> when in fact all of these communities have really amazing organizers and volunteers day in and day out putting in work into those communities to make them better, to make them more whole, to make them more complete. And that doesn't mean that what you're doing isn't helping for sure and for certain it is, but it is to recognize and understand the context that long after this season is over, uh, long after the election, for a yes. lot of folks, this is their life, right? And so yes. how do you honor that? And how do you step into communities with a sense of reverence for the people who have and continue to do the work um, and sort of honor that and revere that work that they've done by complementing it as opposed to co-opting it? God, I think that is so 
crucial, especially around election season right now, because communities are used to having volunteers and campaigns swoop in like the month mm-hmm. before an election and uh, and then disappear and, and not invest in those communities. And like you said, there are organizations that are on the ground doing the work. Like we don't need to come in and tell people what to do or create stuff that's already there. But, you know, all organizations do need bodies. They need people to do the stuff that they need done. So I am excited about organizations like Swing Left, like Indivisible, like you know, that, that have been around uh, not just for elections, but year round to invest in these communities because we really, really need that. Absolutely. And it's a huge lift, right? And so it really speaks to the true power of community. How do we help each other? How do we go hand in hand to really complete um, this really monumental task that lays before us? And I think that's a testament to when we volunteer with the community in mind, right? With the real tangible people that are impacted by policies, by elected officials, by this Mm -hmm. sort of landscape that we find ourselves in, we will always kind of come from that perspective and we'll always be successful in the sense that we'll understand the magnitude of this, not as a singular day or a singular season, but really a lifetime of impacts for communities across the country. Yeah. And your third one, I don't like at all. Uh, and that's letting go of, <laughs> of my truth is the truth. So explain that Explain and tell me how yeah. I can actually do that. Cause I really think I'm right all the time. Th- there you go. Right. It's sort of that, <laughs> uh, that meme, right? Like, this is what I think, uh, argue, like convince me otherwise. And I think it's sort of this sense, right? We navigate the world as our truth is the only truth, meaning this thing that I believe, this thing that I hold dear. And it's easy to say it when it's sort of low stakes, right? Like I believe mm. that the best steak is medium or medium rare, right? It's sort of like- <laughs> We're back to like, our no, tacos. No, no. We're back to our yeah, ultimate exactly, taco right? discussion, right? Yeah. It's sort of easy to kind of negotiate, but when we talk about more complicated issues, right? It is certainly more challenging because some of these ideas that we hold absolutely have helped us formulate our identity. So when I say, you know, your truth is not the only truth for a lot of people, it's like, but wait, that's a truth that I've known my whole life. That's something that I've believed my whole life. Uh, Something as simple as with the American dream, if anyone works hard enough, they can have and achieve Mm. and accomplish X, Y, and Z, right? I'm talking about those things, those really, really strong feelings, things that we hold true and that for some people may say like, that's not a truth for me, right? That doesn't exist for me. That's not my lived experience. And for a lot of us, that can be disturbing, right? It can be very scary and it can be off-putting and it can make us suspicious of people and not uh, connected to them. And what I say in this landscape of understanding that is part of our work as human citizens, part of our work as civic partners is to understand the truths of everyone around us and engage others so that we better understand their lived experience. So uh, you talked a lot about kind of the election season and the month before an election. And as someone who was born and raised in Florida, I know too well (laughs) what it's like growing up in a swing state, right? And um, kind of growing up under the limelight uh, of election season. And um, 
people make a lot of assumptions and some of them I'm afraid to say may or may not be true when you look at Florida man or Florida woman headlines, right? But (laughs) I think a lot about this concept of I come from this really rich and dynamic community. And when people make assumptions about what it means to be from Florida, what it means to be from Miami, what it means to be anything or anyone, I am always quick to sort of acknowledge and help reframe that context that there's not only one way of being, right? There's not only one way to be Southern. There's not only one way to be Latinx or to be young uh, mm-hmm. or progressive, right? And and the greater we work or the harder we work, I should say, to sort of understand these different lived experiences, the better off we are in understanding each other. Yeah, that's amazing. And the, the fourth one... Um... I also struggle with, uh, and that's, I can't be critiqued. Yeah. That's my favorite <laughs> one. That's my favorite one. I try, I, uh, I say that tongue in cheek. I, I, tr- I do try to be open and open to critique. And, uh, so I, I, maybe I'm being a little too tongue in cheek with that, but it's hard for, for people to, um, I think especially, especially for a lot of us progressives who um, see ourselves as champions for social justice and doing this work and champions for diversity, what you were just talking about, like what does it mean to be liberal? What does it mean to be progressive? There's different lenses that people will look at that with and identify Mm -hmm. with. So I think that this last one's especially important. Um, I I think we we throw this on probably more conservative people, more pe- people who are closed-minded and and need to be open to this ourselves as progressives, right? Yeah, I would say not only do we need to be open to it, like I think it's our highest calling. Mm. Right? I think if you engage in this work and you are about justice work, if you are about liberation, um I think the highest calling we have for ourselves is to be willing to be critiqued and to critique others. I always tell people that even after over a decade of doing diversity work, I am constantly in spaces of critique. I want to know how I can be better, how I can Mm. do better, because the reality is both I and you and all of us collectively have been socialized into a system that persists and pushes forth inequality, right? Which means that Before our conception, uh, we were sort of engulfed in this system that created a world that was unequal, that was unfair, that was unjust in so many ways. And so I sort of think like, who am I to navigate and engage in this world where before I was even born, I was already being taught all these ideas and encouraged and influenced by all of these really, really challenging things to think that I have it right and to think that I get it right all the time. And Mm. so even after over 10 years of this work, I am constantly questioning what I'm thinking, what I believe, uh, and I'm evolving, right? Um, and if I'm not growing, then I'm dead. And, and, And I mean that in this really, really tangible way to say, how do we come humbly enough, right? With enough humility with each other to say, I don't know, I can do better. I will do better. And I think it's much easier to look at um, more conservative folks and say, oh my gosh, like, look at these things that you believe. This is not good enough, right? But the reality is there are tons of things um, around progressive causes that require us to really figure out, to dig deep and figure out these really complicated and complex issues. And if we're not willing to be critiqued, if we're not willing 
for someone to come to us and say, hey, you've harmed me, right? You've hurt me. You've made me, uh, you've really, really upset me with this thing that you've done or this thing that you've said, then we're not really about the things that we say we're about, right? And so I think this is probably the most critical piece of uh, four steps that I could offer is to enter this work with that willingness to be open enough and humble enough, right, to be critiqued. Yeah, that's really powerful too, because obviously these conversations, conversations around race and inequality are difficult for a lot of people to have and everyone should be having them. So you have to give quarter to people to have imperfect conversations too, right? Because mm-hmm. not being open to critique or uh, being open-minded in, you know, whatever your work is, I think it's, it prevents these conversations from happening, right? Absolutely. I think when we engage and, and we're more conscious of the ways in which we engage the world and we harm others by, sometimes it's not what we believe. It's not something we've actively done, but it is something that we've been socialized to do and believe. You right. know, um, I think it's it's that question, that principle of, hey, this is hard, right? This is mm-hmm. awkward. This we this is not easy. And if it was easy, would have we would have solved it by now. And yeah. so- I think about that, right? Taking this really complicated centuries long issue and how do we really, really work hard to figure it out? (laughs) It's not something that happens overnight and it's certainly not something that's easy. It's just something you have to determine is worth it. Yeah. And that's the core of your work. And so you mentioned um, intervening too. So one big question that a lot of people have is when and how should we step in and disrupt bad behavior, be it overt or, you know, microaggressions. Um, Can you distill some practices for our listeners? Yeah. So one is really just, I always start with the self. And I think a critical part of figuring out when do I step in? How do I step in? Should I step in? Is really navigating whether or not you have the capacity to. And I don't Mm. want to underestimate this because as we find ourselves in sort of the swarm of COVID, of social uprisings and political unrest, our own mental health, our own emotional well-being can't be understated. And so Mm. I always think to, do you have the capacity, right, to engage in this conversation, to confront this issue, to really dig deep? And then do you have the privilege? And so as I think about who I am as a cisgender, heterosexual woman in particular, right? This Mm -hmm. is something that sits with me all the time. I think about that as a privilege in the sense that I am privileged in society and I take it upon myself, right? When I see things that are homophobic or transphobic to step up and say something. Why? Because if I'm granted privilege in society, then I need to use that privilege, right? And leverage it to make sure that I create spaces and opportunities for folks who Mm -hmm may not have that opportunity or who may not find psychological safety in disrupting it themselves, right? The next piece for me is around really just the doing, right? And I think a lot of the concept of disruption, of saying something, of speaking up, is really as simple as just doing it. And I think we enter that with an expectation that it'll be easy or comfortable. And so I tell people all the time to be mindful of their physiological response. Hmm. And so does your does your stomach not up, right? Are you sweating? Are you tapping your foot? Is it cat got your tongue? Like what is it that right. stops you 
from speaking up or saying something. And if it's simply the discomfort, the more we know it, the more control we have over it. So when you feel it building up, you can name it and you can move past it. And so I always tell people to name that thing that's stopping you, right? To name it, uh, to put it away so that you can kind of trudge forward in saying something. And the last piece for me in terms of that questioning of disruption is really just using tools, right? Uh, whether it be leveraging your relationships with other people, um, using humor to distract, um, using rough draft, which is this mm. concept around saying, hey, rough draft here. I'm not sure that I have this all figured out, but I love that. I, I love that concept. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. It, it prevents us from being perfect, right? I think perfection can be our enemy in this work in the sense yep. that if you feel in your gut that something's wrong, say it, right? Disrupt it, uh, interrupt it. And when you do that, it's less important whether or not you have the citations or whether or not you've done the background research. It's most important in that moment that you are disrupting a behavior that could be harmful to somebody or some group of folks. That's fantastic. Um, we were talking before we started recording. It is, it's, it's getting crazier and crazier the closer we get to election. You know, the election, Trump's overt bigotry is really highlighted and emboldened the racism that infects our country. And um, you know, we're seeing people rise up together in historic numbers, um, and we're seeing mixed results so far legislatively from that too. Mm -hmm. um, I want to finish with the question that we ask all of our guests, but I'm going to kind of put a extra addendum on it. First of all, do you think we are on a path to see some real systemic change in our country? And what gives you the most hope for our future? Hmm. I love that question. I will say yes, of course. I, I have to I have to believe we're on a path to systemic change. But I do believe that systems are just that, right? They're embedded in everything that we do. And so it takes more than a little bit, as um, a number of Black grandmothers would say, right? It takes more than <laughs> a little bit to, to get this done. Mm. And um, so, yes, absolutely. The thing that gives me hope is that we are human beings and human beings have a tremendous capacity for change. And I have to believe that with steadfastness, with hope, with faith, with commitment that anything that can be faced can be changed. And I think a lot about my ancestors, right? I think a lot about the legacy of a Fannie Lou Hamer, hmm. of Shirley Chisholm, of Dorothy Height, of these really Polly Murray, of Ida B. Wells, really amazing activists, change makers who faced unsurmountable pressures and challenges in their quest to do what they believed was right. And so the things that give me hope are both our past and our future, right? Thinking about the things that have been done, the change that has happened, and the change that has yet to come, and realizing that for our future. So I, I feel really energized by all of those things. Jordine, thank you so much. We could, uh, we should do like a whole series of these. <laughs> it's just oh, a I would a, love to. It's been a spectacular conversation, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. Thank you all for all of the work that you're doing. And I am so tremendously grateful for this opportunity. Thank you for joining us and for stepping up to take action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. Do not wait. We need you right now. 
Together we can call all the voters and make sure this election is the landslide we need. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share us on social media and use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, this is so important. Sign up for a phone bank ship at swingleft.org slash phone bank. We really appreciate all that you are doing. We appreciate you being here with us. We'll be back with some more and with Mariah next Wednesday. I'll be back. (laughs) 